Inhabit, Crafting a Rule of Life, Chapter 7, Trust, Relational Priorities, Guiding Principle. Trust your personal rule of life is formed and reflected in your daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual relational priorities. What are the greatest intangible gifts you've received from your family and friends? Be specific as possible. What are the most important gifts you can offer to those you are in relationship with? Family, friends, church, work, community, etc. When you consider your primary relationships today, which offer most to your personal spiritual development? In what ways are you contributing specifically to the spiritual well-being of others? Friendship is like a step to raise us to love and knowledge of God. What happens, what what happiness, what security, what joy to have someone to whom you dare to speak on terms of equality? One to whom you need have no further to confess your failings. One to whom you can unblushingly make known what progress you have made in the spiritual life. All read of Ruvalix. Biblical Reflection What, Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth 1.16 Unswerving loyalty and selfless devotion are the overarching themes of the Book of Ruth, a masterpiece of literary art and theological insight. Ruth trusted in God and developed trust and trustworthiness in all of her primary relationships. Ruth the Moabite reflects the love of God clearly and effectively. Through her benevolence, she blesses her mother-in-law, Naomi, and is blessed in return with the gift of redemption. For Ruth, relational health and integrity garner life's greatest gifts of pure love, peace, and joy. Ruth is an absolutely delightful book. Mention its name and the Bible readers smile, warmly praise its beauty, and quietly tell what it means to them personally. The book is, after all, profoundly human, a story with down-to-earth features we can easily identify with. Immediately, readers see themselves in the story. They emphasize readily with poor Naomi, battered by life's tragic blows, famine, exile, grief, loneliness, and recall their own bitter bruises. They quickly admire charming Ruth, her commitment, Courage and cleverness. Admiration easily yields to emulation. Readers know how much this tragic world would be better off were there more Ruths. They warm willingly to Boaz, that gracious tower of gentle manliness and generosity whose uprightness challenges them to reflect on their own way of life. In sum, they are ordinary people who portray an extraordinary alternative to the way of life 
alternative to the way life is lived, the life of Hassad, compassionate loyalty. The Book of Ruth is a Hebrew short story told with consummate skill. Among historical narratives in scripture, it is unexcelled in its compactness, vividness, warmth, beauty, and dramatic effectiveness, an exquisitely wrought jewel of Hebrew narrative art. It can be read as a drama in four acts with a prologue and epilogue. The prologue sets the scene. Naomi, her husband, and two sons went to Moab, where her sons married Moabite women. Naomi's husband and sons died, and in distress, she decides to leave Moab and return to her hometown of Bethlehem in Judea, Ruth 1, 1 through 7. In the first act, Naomi tells her Moabite daughter-in-law, Orpha and Ruth, to stay in Moab and return to their mother's home. Orpha agrees, but Ruth refused to leave. Naomi and accompany, but refuses to leave Naomi and accompanies her to Bethlehem. See Ruth 1, 8 through 22. In the second act, we see Ruth gathering and gleaning barley in the fields of Naomi's relative Boaz, who shows special concern for Ruth. See Ruth chapter 2. This is an obvious act of divine intervention for both Ruth and Naomi. Ruth is astounded by the favor that is shown to her as a foreigner. The comfort and kindness extended to her from Boaz is a gift from the hand of God for her love and faithfulness to Naomi. The third act takes place at the threshing floor where, at Naomi's instigation, Ruth hides until Boaz falls asleep and then quietly lays down by his feet. When Boaz awakes, Ruth expresses her desire to marry him according to the custom of the Kingsman Redeemer. But Boaz tells her that another man has a prior claim. Ruth chapter 3. Finally, at the city gate, the other relative renounces his claim and Boaz marries Ruth. Ruth 4, 1 through 11. The epilogue relates... Naomi's joy at this turn of events and then lists some of Ruth's descendants, including David. Ruth 4, 13-18 The book of Ruth reveals a community doing what was right in God's eyes. It's a story of God's grace in the midst of difficult circumstances. Even in times of crisis and deepest despair, There are those who follow God and through whom God works. No matter how discouraging or antagonistic the world may seem, there are always people who follow God. He will use anyone who is open to him to achieve his purposes. Despite our fascination with the characters of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, God is the primary actor in the drama. Even though human beings are free moral agents, God's unseen hand directs events to accomplish his purpose. 
God transforms Naomi's sorrow into joy and rewards Ruth's commitment to Israel's God and community with an enduring place of honor in its heritage. In Boaz, we see a foreshadowing of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Ruth's inability to do anything to alter her estate typifies absolute human helplessness. Romans 5, 6 and Boaz's willingness to pay the complete price, 4 9, foreshadows Christ's full payment of, for our salvation. 1 Corinthians 6 20, Galatians 3 13, 1 Peter 1 18 and 19. Loyalty, love, kindness, the value of persons, and the need to understand one another stand paramount to this text. The book of Ruth tells us that no matter how bad things may be, goodness exists when we are willing to make the effort. Ruth teaches us many lessons of loving loyalty and courageous devotion to the primary relationships of our lives. She embodies a selflessness marked by humility, gentleness, and perseverance. We all learn from Ruth in our daily attempts to foster health and vitality in our relationships. The following list of traits that create and encompass healthy, trusting relationships are discernible from the book of Ruth. Pay close attention to how these characteristics apply to your own relationships. Faithful Presence Ruth's commitment to Naomi is a reflection of love that abides through thick and thin. When we're willing to stay for the long haul, despite the challenges the shared experiences of life will strengthen us. Ruth's hospitality of heart wouldn't let Naomi be alone in her distress. Together, they embrace whatever God had for their future and were blessed as a result. Honesty and transparency. Her willingness to be fully transparent with Ruth was the key to unlocking Naomi's heart. Uh, Naomi's heart of disappointment and heartache. As the story unfolds, this becomes the glue that holds them together while God's will unfolds for Ruth and Boaz and ultimately the extended faith community that surrounded them. God can handle our transparency. When we have relationships of trust, honesty and openness follow and solidify that trust. Mutual submission. Ruth was willing to submit to Naomi's greater need for care and empathy, even though she refused Naomi's request to leave her side and return to Ruth's own people. Submission to God's first and foremost is the basis of willingly submitting to the needs of another. Open-handedness and accountability to each other led these two women forward. With no need to control the outcome or each other, God provided for them both beyond what they originally hoped. Confession and Forgiveness God's provision of a kinsman redeemer in Boaz is a preamble to God's gracious provision of Christ, sent to forgive, restore, and renew. In their Tears, Ruth and Naomi cried out to God for comfort and protection. 
And though they were not out of God's will and in need of confession of sin, they indeed confessed their sin, their need for redemption. Relationships that willingly voice, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, and I love you, are richly blessed by God. Only from a posture of humble repentance will reconciliation meaningfully occur. Joy, laughter, and tears. With true joy, despite the circumstances of their lives, Ruth and Naomi pursue God's perfect will. His provision of Boaz is the apex of this love story and is symbolic of the essence of our joy in the Lord. Out of the tears of distress, there are plentiful tears of joy. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Ruth 4.14 Ultimately, Boaz and Ruth had a son, Obed, the grandfather of King David of the genealogy of Christ. Listening to listening and empathy. God heard the heart cries of Naomi and Ruth. Ruth listened intently and emphatically to Naomi. Boaz heard from the Lord and served both served Ruth boldly and lovingly. An earnest pursuit of sympathy, empathy and grace runs throughout this story. Relationships that pursue a listening posture are the most robust and life-transforming. Attitude of Gratitude The central theme of the story moves from emptiness to fullness. An empty Naomi becomes full again. An empty Ruth gleans and gains at the threshing floor of God's goodness, kindness, and mercy. Boaz discovers a creative way to serve the larger cause and is richly blessed himself. With hearts of thanksgiving and expectancy, each person is filled with God's loving will and ways. This perspective is significant for relational vitality and wholeness. Ruth is a wonderful example of how God delights in the quality of our earthly relationships. Indeed, the entire book is filled with examples of how God blesses and multiplies the faithfulness of those who live in His grace-filled way. Ruth leaves us analyzing and reflecting on the well-ordered path toward relationship health. How is the Lord inviting you to consider this part of the journey for yourself? Number one, read Ruth 1. Naomi's famine included famine in the land and famine of her heart. The loss of her husband and two sons left her a statute of understandable bitterness and distress. What were her reasons for wanting to send her two daughters-in-law back to their Moabite families? When she arrived in Bethlehem, her focus was on emptiness and misfortune. What are the values of such authenticity? Number two, read Ruth 2 through 3. Ruth's commitment to Naomi and her courage towards Boaz resulted in gleaning and blessing. What are the evidences of God's faithful provisions to Ruth and all 
her key relationships. Number three, read Ruth four. Boaz's kindness and generosity towards the two windows is a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrificial role as our Redeemer. In what ways did Boaz serve as Redeemer for both Naomi and Ruth? Historical Insight While delighting in the Lord, William Wilberforce's passion became that of God's namely breaking the bonds of slavery in English in England and the world and in the overall reformation of society. What is remarkable about Wilberforce was his ability to attract others to share his passion. Together they accomplished many remarkable feats toward the reformation of society and the proliferation of philanthropy. Chief among his partners in changing British society were his friends in the Clapham sect. Wilberforce was born on August 24th, 1759, to a rich merchant. A year after his father died, when William was 10, he was sent away to live with his childless aunt and uncle, William and Hannah Wilberforce, and to attend school. His aunt and uncle were evangelical Christians and close friends of George Whitefield, the famous pastor of the Great Awakening. Thus, he was exposed to lively evangelical Christianity at a young age. Reflecting on his childhood, Wilberforce fondly remembered hearing John Newton, the former slave ship captain turned pastor and hymn writer, preach in London. Wilberforce was significantly affected by the preaching of Newton. William's mother became worried that he that her son might be turning Methodist, so she rescued her son and sent him off to boarding school Pembroke. Here, William Force met William Pitt, who would eventually become British, the British Prime Minister and a powerful ally in the fight against the slave trade. In the fall of 1776, a young... At the young age of 17, Wilberforce matriculated in St. John's College of Cambridge. While in college, one of William's uncles died, leaving him a small fortune, thus ensuring he would never have to work a day in his life. Wilberforce dreamed of his life as a politician. This dream fortified his relationship with William Pitt. In 1780, Wilberforce campaigned for a seat in the House of Commons to represent his hometown of Hull. Wilberforce's natural charisma and speaking ability, coupled with the 8,000 euros he had spent on the election, secured his spot as a member of Parliament. This election was the beginning of over half a century spent in elected office. During his first four years as a member of parliament, 
William earned a reputation among the elite of society as a songster and wit who was professionally careless and inaccurate in method. But in 1784, William Force experienced a monumentous change. In a surprising turn of events, he was converted to Christianity, the moment he calls the great change. After this, he was convicted of his frivolous and prodigal lifestyle. He understood that he had wasted his time and abilities thus far in life. One of the first effects of his new faith was contempt for his wealth, luxurious lifestyle, and idleness. He developed a passion for helping the poor. Wilberforce associated his political career with his sinful lifestyle and thought that his faith and career in politics may be a company may be incompatible. He was ashamed and tormented by the idea that he may not be able to remain a politician. Agonizing over the years he had wasted only on himself, Wilberforce wrote, I was filled with sorrow. I am sure that not that no human creature would suffer more than I did for some months. Knowing Wilberforce's anguish and that he was considering stepping away from public career, Pitt advised him to remain in politics. Though hesitant because of his reputation, Wilberforce sought the advice of John Newton, who also advised him to remain in politics. One biographer suggests that Newton's advice likely mirrored a note he wrote to William two years later. It is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. Once Wilberforce became a Christian and found his delight and purpose in God, his outlook on life changed the purpose for his life was transformed. His October 28, 1787 diary entries report. God ultimately has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, i.e. morals. Wilberforce devoted himself to these for the rest of his life. The abolition of slavery and reformation of morals, however, was no, no small task, and Wilberforce faced severe opposition and criticism. It took 45 years of hard work before the Emancipation Bill was passed in the House of Commons in 1833. In 1807, Wilberforce enjoyed his first victory, passing a bill securing the abolition of the slave trade. However, it took another 26 years in 1833 before a bill was passed ensuring that abolition was actually enforced. In the beautiful providence of God, Wilberforce died on July 29, 1833, three days after abolition was passed. In addition to the abolition of slavery, during his political career, Wilberforce and his allies were also responsible for 
founding more than 220 national religious, moral, educational, and philanthropic institutions and societies to alleviate child abuse, poverty, illiteracy, and other social ills. Wilberforce leaned heavily on a group of influential friends knowing friends known as the Clapham sect. Stephen Tompkins describes the sect as a network of friends and families in England with William Wilberforce as the center of gravity who were powerfully bound together by their shared moral and spiritual values, by their religious mission and social activism, by their love for each other, and by marriage. This group was also known as the Saints. They included a rector, writing, a writer, governor, politician, scholar, philanthropist, and musicians. Regarding this group, one historian writes, We are thinking of a company of men of a hundred and fifty years ago who were not only good, but by any reasonable measure, great. They applied themselves to the social and religious problems of their time, not only with zeal, but with wisdom. They undertook the overthrow of gigantic evils and succeeded in their undertaking. They initiated movements which, so far from having spent themselves, are vigorous and powerful today. Never a formal organization, the Clapham sect was a company of friends who lived near each other in a quiet village near London. They shared the same religious outlook and worked together in close operation for the good of the world. They were a remarkable Christian community, bound together not only in friendship, but as co-workers in the kingdom of God. They exercised their philanthropy on a generous scale. They were keenly interested in the new missionary movement. In addition to ending the slave trade, the chaplains, the Chapham sect was also credited to the foundation of the Bible Society whose purpose was to enable more people to have a Bible and many other valiant endeavors for the good of the society at large. Many members of the Clapham sect were influential and several were wealthy. They did not retreat from society, but rather applied their Christian faith and their influential position in society to reform it. One way was through philanthropy. One year, Wilberforce gave away 3,000 euros more than he earned. Though he didn't always have more than he earned, he routinely gave away a quarter of his income. Through a generous, well-ordered heart and in the context of healthy, trusting relationships, William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect have left the indelible mark on the world. They are to be applauded for their effect on subsequent generations of Christians in the marketplace of business, politics, and social change. Personal rule of life. In what ways is God inviting you to recalibrate, recalibrate your earthly relationships? 
In questions one through three, you will be encouraged to prayerfully consider the state of your primary relational connections. In order for your strengths and weaknesses to be identified side by side, it's important to be candid in your reflections. As you address these issues alone, consider ways to reveal your discoveries to those most directly affected. This section of your rule of life will impact all other areas to be revealed. Number one, review the role section previously completed. List here the relationships that occupy the majority of your time. What are the greatest joys and blessings of each of these relationships? Number two. Now review the same list of relationships and list the greatest needs of either the relationship itself or the individual or group involved. Note carefully, empathically, and prayerfully the situations that have contributed to these needs. Number three. Attend to your own emotional state for a few moments. What feelings or emotions are you dealing with that need some attention? Are you dealing with any sense of desolation or discouragement in reference to these relationships? Or are there any emotional concerns rising up from deep within you that you'd like to seek help to better understand? Be sure not to avoid what rises to the surface. Seek professional counsel as needed. After answering questions four through six, take time to begin writing your personal rule of life statements below. Question four. Who are the people that mean the most to you? Do you feel called to deepen those relationships so they continue to be a source of ongoing encouragement and enrichment? If so, how? Number five. Do you feel called to come alongside some of your key relationships in order that healing, hope, forgiveness, and restoration can occur. Explain. Number six, take some time to consider your relational and emotional development priorities for the upcoming season of your life. Put these into meaningful phrases or sentences that will enhance trust within the key relationships noted. Don't try to be comprehensive here. Instead, prayerfully ask the Lord to lead you to the relationships or emotions of great priority. Spiritual community. What was most striking to you about the relationships Ruth had with both her mother-in-law Naomi and her husband Boaz? How will this story of redemption be an encouragement to you. Number two, as you read about the amazing life and service embodied in William Wilberforce, what strikes you as his greatest contributions? How do you think his relationship with his peers enhanced his work? As you consider the health and strength of your primary relationships, what are you, your observations and how about how churches are and organizations are or are not aiding you in developing healthy relationships. Four, as you've been reflecting on the health of your primary relationships, what positive or negative emotions are 
brought to the surface. Why is it important for us to attend to our emotional state, particularly as it affects our primary relationships? Five, how can we come alongside one another as spiritual friends, praying, encouraging, and exhorting each other to focus on the health and vitality of our primary relationships?